one of the most tragic things that could ever happen to a follower of Jesus Christ is to ever think that God no longer loves them. God doesn't love you or I anymore. This becomes a major issue, especially, you know, when we feel like we are further away than what we used to be, right? And, and you know what I'm talking about because you have those days in which you say, oh, well, I'm just not going to go to church today. Or I'm not going to read the word of God today. Or I'm not going to pray today because I have other things to do. But for the faithful believer, it is difficult to manage what you don't feel today versus what you used to feel and how it felt when you first came to Christ. You remember those days? Remember how you were willing to tell anybody and everybody about Jesus and you didn't care what they thought about it? You wanted to press, oh, let me tell you about Jesus. Now it feels like every time you hear a word about telling others, someone encouraging you about telling others about Jesus, uh, you may feel as, as if someone or the preacher is trying to manipulate you. That's right. That you, you have moved from this place uh, of passionately pursuing God to now that when another believer tells you about what we should or how we should walk, all of a sudden now they're being manipulative. don't think about it anymore in terms of how a God is trying to prompt us and to move us to closer relationship with him. <laughs> that passion has waned a bit. And when that passion wanes, we begin to equate that waningness with uh, God maybe doesn't love me the way that he should. Now wonder, because you feel blah, you feel blah about your relationship versus that roar of passion that you once felt, uh, that you can't get to God unless someone sings you there. You can't get to God because today I'm just not feeling it. Because every time I come to church, I expect uh, that the chill bumps would go down my spine like a lightning bolt. So we forget. We lose a great sense of nearness to the Lord, and not because his desire for us has changed, uh, but because our love for him has somehow in some way dulled over time. But you and me both know that there are many other good reasons why this happens. We sometimes begin to feel that distance because of hardships. Hardships make us wonder about the love of God. Uh, if he loves us, then why isn't God protecting me? If he doesn't love us, then we expect uh, for all hell to break loose. It is that dissonance which occurs between our personal experience and what we believe in our faith. 
So our experiences say, I feel like this, but the, uh, the communication that uh, we get from God's Word or from the preacher or from uh, the statement of faith says that we should believe this. But yet, this is the way I feel, but yet, this is how I believe. And oftentimes, what wins out is how I feel. Right? Because uh, the way that we feel <clears throat> will always be on roller coasters, up one day, down the next. But as I've oftentimes said that, uh, uh, when you have a job, uh, you may feel up and down about that job, but yet you manage to go to work every day, don't you? Today, uh, you, you know, today I don't feel like going to work. So I'm just going to stay home. Yeah. It may work once or twice because you know you have that personal time off, right? So it, it'll work for a little bit. But then, once you used up all those days, what do you say? Well, uh, even though I feel like this, let me go on in because, right, there is a need in the household that needs to be fulfilled. But, but the experience also says that, uh, that oftentimes, once you get to work, that many times it's not as bad as what we thought in the first place. You get there and you're like, well, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. But why is it different with our relationship with Jesus? Why do we treat uh, the one that <clears throat> has, planned, has a plan for us and that will be awaiting for us in eternity, why do we treat God like a stepchild? Right? And, and, and why do we treat other things like they are our true gods? That we have been born in and through those things. This is the unwritten rule that's not found in the human policy book. So regardless of how long you live on this planet, you get a sense of cause and effect. If, if X happens, then Y will surely be the result. In other words, if you uh, do somebody wrong, then you expect to be wrong one day. <clears throat> If it doesn't happen immediately, uh, especially when you know someone else that has done something wrong, you are saying to yourself, that's okay, it's going to what? It's going to catch up with them one day. Right? That is what we say. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. God has kept you. And God will defend you. God has kept you and God will defend you. Paul, he writes here, what then shall we say to these things? <laughs> if God be for us, who can be against us? Paul says, what shall we say to these things? What, if, if God is for us, who or what can be against us? Uh, but uh, let's break this down a little bit. Uh, let's start with the first part of this verse. Uh, Paul, uh, he's referring to, or what is he referring to when he says, what then shall we say to these things? This tells us that obviously he's been talking about something else, right? Uh, these things uh, obviously are referring to something else that happened. 
Let's look at, uh, look, uh, that, that leads us back to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things means that <clears throat> Scripture has provided previous information that we needed to know in order to make it to this point. One of the easiest things for us to do is just travel back one verse or a couple of words and figure that we got it down. But let us first look at uh, Romans 8, uh, verses 29 and 30. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. <clears throat> now, verse 29 tells us that we if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that we have been conformed to the image of God's Son, who is Jesus Christ. Uh, but however, I want you to know this idea of imagery, uh, how one is made in the image of another, that it takes us all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, in which we find out there that all of mankind was made what? In the Okay, uh, yeah, I think we're getting there. Let's try it again, however. Uh, we find out uh, uh, there in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 26, we find out that all of mankind has been made in the image of... Uh, so were you made in the image of God? And the answer is... Uh, so even if you are really, really bad or really, really good, were you made in the image of God? And the answer is... But we know that over time that this image has been breached. This image of God in us has been breached and, and broken, broken by sin and sinfulness. Well, what do you mean? I mean that God made us perfect, that Adam and Eve were perfect. But the human race, through Adam, decides to try a different route to spirituality, which ultimately led to, led to destructiveness. So that once perfect image of God was shattered by the lust of the eyes, the lust uh, of the flesh, and the pride in one's lifestyle. <laughs> that ever-persistent problem of this broken image is always now before you and me. If you've ever owned a picture in a picture frame uh, that's partially made of glass, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Uh, you know if you've had a picture made in a picture frame, and you know if you've cracked that glass before. Have you ever been there before? You've actually cracked that glass somehow or some way, or you've seen the picture of that. And you've had good intentions of always replacing that, Right? You say, I'm going to get to that one day. I know that it's cracked, and let me get to it one day. But in the meantime, it doesn't get replaced. But every time that you look at that picture, what do you see? What do we see? We see the, we see the crack every single time. You may even forget about that crack. 
and gone about your life and doing your regular chores in your household, but when you again turn your attention back to that picture, you and I, we will see the what? We will see the crack. That crack, it screams at you, saying, why haven't you fixed me? What have you been doing that you haven't had, you know, two or three minutes uh, to get a frame and, and, and put me in a new frame? That crack, it screams out to you. Uh, you know it's there and you don't like it, but yet nothing is done about it. Originally, God uh, made us in his image and God made us with no crack. The Lord could look at uh, you and I, if that were possible, uh, for us to be made during the time of Adam and Eve as perfect and sinless creatures, and he could look at us without seeing any obstruction to his perfection. But sin has produced a crack through our image, which forever changed the way that God looks at us. Now when God looks at you, now when, or when God looks at, at me, <clears throat> if we don't have Christ, <clears throat> he sees the crack. He sees the breach. And he knows that there is a great gulf that exists between you and him because of this crack of unfaithfulness and sin. So just by going back a few verses, we have enough of these things that we see. But yet God looks at us God looks at us and says, there is a crack. There is a crack. So God, he predestines us, verse 30 now here in Romans 8, God, he predestines us, he calls us, he justifies and he glorifies us. All of this is true if you are in Jesus Christ because of what he has done for us and on our behalf. Now, you might be listening to this message, right? And you may believe that this also applies to you, right? Because what God has been trying to do all along, uh, he has been uh, trying to make this attempt to get you and I back to him. He's been trying to erase that crack. So Jesus Christ, he comes into the picture, and if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that one really big sin issue that's there when God looks at you, he sees Jesus Christ, he sees the blood of the Lamb, and now he looks at you with pleasure. No longer far. No longer opposed to him. But if you haven't accepted Christ, the fact that being predestined and called and justified and glorified or that God is not talking about you. God is not talking about you. But I want him to be talking about you. So I pray that if you don't have a relationship with Christ, that today will be your day. So looking back now, uh, we just read a couple of verses, verses 29 and 30, when we're talking about these things, but I want you to know the idea of what Paul is talking about uh, when he says, when he refers to these things, that it takes us all the way back to chapter 5 of Romans. Go ahead, uh, chapter 5 of Romans. Okay, now I'm going to blaze through this because I'm trying to go somewhere. Chapter 5, verse 1 <clears throat> What are some of these other things? It says that we have now been justified by faith and now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. 
If, in other words, Paul says in, in Romans 5.1 that if you don't have Jesus, you don't have peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us and then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.18. That one act of righteousness leads to justification and life <clears throat> for all men. Romans 6, verse 5, we will be re, uh, united with Christ in the resurrection. Romans 6, 14, sin has no dominion or control over you anymore if you are in Christ. Look at this, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation to those who in, are in Christ Jesus. Keep going, Romans 8, 14, being led by the Spirit means you are God's sons and daughters. Romans 8.17, as the <clears throat> Lord's child, you become heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That means that not only have you died with Christ, that means also you will be resurrected, but you also live with Christ. Romans 8.26, that if you are a follower of Christ, right, and you enter into your prayer life and you don't know how to pray that one of the blessings and one of the benefits that you have is that the Holy Spirit intercedes on your behalf. Have you ever been there that you've been trying to pray and you don't know what you need to pray for? You just know stuff is a mess and you just need the help of the Lord to help you pray. And I've shared this with you before. And we get on our knees and say, oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. Lord, you know what a mess so-and-so has caused me. And Lord, I'm just asking you that you would fix them and fix them and fix them and fix them. Lord, do a work in their life. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would call down the fire of your Holy Spirit to touch them. And the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. And then the Holy Spirit says this, no, that's not what they're praying. This is the prayer that they should be praying. The Holy Spirit tells the Father, change them. Move in their life. Make them less critical. Make them people who loves other folks. Uh, mold them and move them. As a matter of fact, that very thing that they're trying to get out of, keep them there so they can have a deepened relationship with you. That's what the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And then, Romans 8.28 <clears throat> says that God is working all things together for good to those who love God, to the call according to his purpose. So you see, uh, all those passages and more <clears throat> about these things, they tell us uh, that there's a thing that go that, that's going on. Uh, these are the things that, that Paul is referring to. These are all the things that had been going on. These are the blessings. These are the benefits for you. So I want you to know as well that God will defend you. God is going to defend you. Paul says, if God is for us, or I think uh, the King James Version says, if God be for us, 
Who can be against us? The Lord, he pulled out all the stops to make sure nothing would prevent you from getting to him and staying in him. The Lord, he pulled out all the stops. You know, when I thought about that phrase, all the stops, I began to ask myself, I wonder how many people actually know what all the stops mean. Let me tell you what all the stops mean. Remember those old organs sometimes you see in certain churches? They have those big giant organs, right? Have you seen pictures of those things? Those massive things, and they got all those keyboards. But then <clears throat> on the organ, it also have a bunch of buttons, knobs. Have you seen that before? Yes? No? Right? I'm not sure if they have them over here. There's a bunch of knobs on there. <clears throat> Where all those knobs are called stops. So when the organist begins to play, and he wants the sound to just really blast and be very full, what he will do is he'll get to that organ, and he'll just start pulling out all the stuff. He pulls this one. He's like frantically pulling all these things out because he wants, he wants the sound to be full. Everything that he can possibly give, he wants to give it at that time. So if God be for us, who can be against us? It's telling us that the Lord, he pulled out all the stops to make sure nothing would prevent you from getting to him and staying in him. Recently, I viewed a program on the History Channel which discussed uh, the, uh, the ancient ways of building and protecting fortresses and castles. Uh, some fortresses uh, would already have very thick walls, you know, uh, 10, 15, 18 feet thick why? In order to prevent uh, when they would lob those cannonballs and hit the wall so the walls would not collapse. But also, if you notice on some of those castles, some of the windows would be very, very thin. And the reason that they were so thin is because uh, if uh, the archers from the opposing enemy uh, tried to shoot at them, uh, they couldn't shoot basically through that little slit unless you were really, really, really good. But it allowed the people on the inside to just to shoot their arrows with no, uh, without abandon. And then in some uh, fortresses and castles, there would be not just one moat, but oftentimes multiple moats leading up. Some of those moats they had uh, in, in, in grass areas and in berms. They had spikes and, and all type of staffs all through. Why? Because they were trying to make sure that nothing can get in there and get to you. In other words, it was like they were saying that uh, we need for you to do everything that you can to protect those who are in the inside. Do all that you can to make sure the enemy cannot get their defenses were designed to protect them from the enemy's horses, their cannons, their arrows, and their foot soldiers. Uh, so if your castle was built during those times, then you would build your castle or your fortress according to how your enemy would attack and what you knew about. Attack and what you knew about. This is just like what the Lord is telling us today. God says that he had created an impenetrable defense for you. Or that in your connection with God, that nothing can separate you uh, from the God that loves you so much. You see, the Lord, he knows all about that enemy who wants to attack you. He knows all about how the enemy wants to come from the left or from the right in order to pull you out and to mess your mind up. He knows all about that. He knows all about it. 
Jesus knows about the weapons of the enemy. In fact, the enemy, he hasn't done anything new. Everything that the enemy does is nothing but repackaged mess. And he knows exactly what's coming down the pipeline. So, if God be for us, who can effectively be against us? To make sure that there would be absolutely surety in your relationship with the Lord God, he sent his son to make a bond between you and him, to make that bond solid. Romans chapter 8, verses 32-34. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring charge, uh, uh, any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Who can condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, not only did he die, it says, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who uh, indeed is interceding for us? You get that? There it is. It talks about the triunity of God. Remember before we read in, in, in Romans 8, who was interceding on our behalf? Remember that? Okay, well, I'll ask it again. All right? It's time to wake up. When we read earlier in Romans chapter 8, we read that there was someone interceding on our behalf. Who was interceding for us? It was the Holy Spirit interceding for us. But now the scripture tells us who is interceding for us. Jesus. Well, wait a minute. Is the Holy Spirit God or is Jesus God? Who's God? Uh, both of them are God. Absolutely. Both of them are God. Before I mention a list of blessings that the believer possesses and nothing can take them away from you. God loves you that much. God loves us uh, so much that he gave his only son to ensure that all the blessings that he had intended for you, that they would arrive to you. So if God uh, went as far as giving up his own son for you, do you think he would not give you what he had intended for you? Do you think you're not going to get it? All those things that we mentioned, they're yours. And more, so we must accept them by faith and not be concerned about those who would condemn us. No one can bring any legitimate charge against you or diminish your blessings in the Lord. But it's absolutely important that we all remember these things. God justifies. Jesus Christ died. He was raised from the dead. And now he sits in heaven interceding on our behalf. Thank you, Lord. So every time there's an accusation denying God's love for you, we need to go to God's word that says, what can we say to these things? Oh, wait a minute, if God is for us, who can be against us? When someone tries to tell you that word of God that you've been believing and that church that you go to talking about Jesus all the time, that that's nothing, that he is no God, and then you come to that and you say, what shall I say to these things? And you say to yourself, if God is for me, what, who can be against me? And you deny that under the blood of Jesus Christ and you tell them Jesus is the only way to heaven. So there is nothing that can separate you or I, if you're in Christ Jesus, from the love of Jesus Christ. Nothing. 
Here we go. Uh, Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? <laughs> there it is. And let's talk about this again. For those of you who don't believe this, all right, it says here, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, but who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And it goes down asking the question, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In the midst of the most horrible of circumstances, you can be confident that no one or no thing can detach God's love for you. Paul mentions situations that can occur which are outside of ourselves to the degree uh, that we are bound to face from day to day. He says, what can separate you from the love of Christ? Is it tribulation? And the answer is what? No. Uh, it, uh, is distress? Can that separate you from the love of Christ? And the answer is uh, can persecution separate you from the love of Christ? Your answer is, uh, what about having nothing to eat? Does that separate you uh, from the love of Christ? Uh, what about if you have no clothes? Uh, does that separate you from the love of Christ? Uh, what about danger? What about sword? Uh, what about guns and bullets? No challenge can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing, you name it. I don't care how big and bad they think they are. Soldiers over there, one day they might be over here. If we don't get our act together, but those soldiers over there in those foreign lands uh, that, that's killing Christians left and right, those believers who refuse uh, to bow uh, a, a knee, a faithful knee uh, to the enemy, continue to believe in Jesus Christ all the way to death. All the way. Those believers we pray for that are hurt or that lose their lives because of Christ are smack dab in the middle of Christ's love. Now look at this. Revelation chapter 6 verse 11. Revelation 6, verse 11. This is fascinating. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. If you don't know who these are, just read a verse before and you will discover that these are people who lost their lives on behalf of the gospel, on behalf of the name of Jesus Christ, on behalf of the word of God. Then it says, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Look at this. Look at this. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers or sisters should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So you see, what the scripture is telling us that part of all these other Christians that are being killed, even though it's tragic, this is part of the fulfillment of prophecy. And since Jesus Christ, even though there are a lot of Christians that have been killed, so even though Jesus Christ has not come back yet, 
What does that tell us? That should tell us that there is more to come. You see that? <clears throat> so those martyrs, and, and by the way, if you don't know what the word martyr means, basically the, the word martyr is the same word anytime you see the word witness in the New Testament. Those are the same words. Martyr, uh, in, the, in the Greek language, they are, in essence, the same word. Martyr and witness, those who testify. So those who testify for Jesus Christ, uh, they, in essence, become a martyr of sorts. So in other words, there are going to be more people to be killed. I mean, it's going to be a mess. It's not like, you know, oh, we heard last week that the ten Christians lost their lives. Oh, no. It's going to be massive. And then at that time, because uh, here, uh, these Christians, these martyrs, they were up under the altar and they were crying out to the Lord, how long? They're in heaven. Crying out, how long? How long are you going to let this mess continue? And the Lord tell them until uh, the number of martyrs is, is full, until it's complete. It's very interesting that when we think of the category of Christians that we find uh, in Revelations after the churches that we find early on in the book, it's very interesting that there are uh, no mentions of pastors. There's no, there's no mentions of pastors, great or small. There's no mention of, of, of great Christian singers or great Christian apologists. Uh, there are no mention of them. But God does mention martyrs, those who have uh, lost their life on behalf of his kingdom. But yet in all those things, even when it seems so destructive and so divisive and so nasty and mean, was that able to separate those fellow brothers and sisters from the love of God? And the answer is no. You, if you're in Christ and I, have complete victory. Why? Because of Christ's love. Here we go. Verse 37 Romans 8. No. <clears throat> In all these things, <clears throat> we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. <clears throat> For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any Thing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And my point was this <clears throat> earlier, verse 39, uh, asking the question again, what shall separate us from the love of God, right? We saw that, right? And then we go back to uh, verse 35. Uh, Paul, he asked the question, what shall separate us from the love of what? Let's try it again, okay? Uh, here in verse 39, near the end, it says, there's nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of God. Everybody see that? Amen? Amen? Uh, verse 35, he asked the question, who shall separate us from the love of whom? Christ. So there it is again. Is it the love of God or is it the love of Jesus Christ? Which one is it? It's both. Why? Because they are one. Jesus says in John chapter 10 verse uh, verse 30, that the Father and I are what? One. There is only one God. Not one God with three faces. 
that he put a mask on at this time and a mask on at that time. No, no, no. They operate uh, independently, dependent upon one another. It is a unity. He says uh, uh, there in Genesis chapter 6, he says, uh, let us go down there in order to confuse those folks in, 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 in Babylon and create a battling amongst them because it was such a mess, so much wickedness there. And also, we already read it, Genesis 1.26, let us, uh, let us create man, what? Uh, who's the us? It is the Trinity. God, singular. But you and I, if you're in Christ, uh, you have complete victory because of Christ's love. Where is our victory? Our victory is over anything that tries to detach God's love from us as his children. There is victory and then there is victory. You may have heard about the, uh, the word Nike, right? Everybody knows Nike, right? Everybody knows Nike. Well, Nike is the Greek, Greek word for victory. By the way, the Romans don't use the word Nike. They have their own language. And their word for victory is Victoria. So Victoria is Nike. Nike is victoriousness. <clears throat> you are familiar with the horse race, right? And you know that the horses, they come out to the gate and they go round and round and round. Same thing with cars, same thing with runners, so on and so forth, right? But oftentimes, uh, the race is so close that what they will do is uh, they will decide to have a photo what? Finish. Why? Because the race is so what? Close that uh, the regular human eye cannot, cannot determine who actually won, so they take a picture. But then, even after that time, uh, they, de they declare that one person won. One person is victorious. When it's all done, we may say something like, man, that race was close. Well, that one runner or car or horse barely edged them out. In that case, we would probably use a word like nikao or, nik or, or, or nike. I can't even say the English word, right? Uh, uh, nikao or, 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 nik or nike. I'm having a hard time there. Uh, to declare the winner. But what about if someone won by 100 yards? What about if they won by an entire lap? Then there would be talks of greatness. There would be talk of magnificence, of the skill and the power of the winner. They would no longer use the word Nikao. They would use the word Hooper Nikao which is like Uberman, right, Uber Nikau, which means that you were more than a winner, you were more than a conqueror, that you were super victorious. You were super conqueror. You were more than a conqueror. In other words, that you won so bad that you whipped them. You whipped their butt. In our passage, that's exactly what we have here. Everyone and everything that tries to take away or diminish God's love for you have gotten whipped pretty bad. Because you find yourself in Jesus Christ and the devil tries to pull you back. I want you to know that God says that the devil has been whipped really, really bad and it wasn't even close. 
You are more than conquerors. Through Christ, you have moved far beyond anything anyone could have anticipated for winning over the various things that have tried to keep you away from God's love. In fact, those things try to convince you that you are not worthy of God's love, that you don't deserve the love of Jesus Christ. So the enemy, and even yourself at times, tries to bring thoughts into your head to convince you God doesn't love you. He tells you God doesn't love you. Remember how you talked the other day or how you looked at something? You, you might as well just give it up. I want you to know that you are a super conqueror in Jesus Christ who gives us the victory that you are a super conqueror in Jesus Christ who gives you the victory to overcome the accusations of the devil. The Lord has already allowed Paul to write about some of the things that can separate you from the love of Christ. But then, you know how we are. What about this? And What about that? And the list goes on and on. But I want you to know, I want you to take your confidence in the Lord because this is what he says that doesn't possess the ability. In other words, this is not an exhaustive list. This list, this is not everything. But he says this again. Let's read it together. I think it's like verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, uh, nor anything else in all creation will, will be able to separate us uh, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. God tells us when you begin to wonder about whether or not if God loves you, he says, be secure in him. Nothing that you can possibly drum up can separate you from Christ's love. Jesus has overcome the insecurity of a loveless existence for a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you love Jesus Christ? Does Jesus love you? Do you love Jesus Christ? Or does Jesus love you? Do you love Jesus Christ? Does Jesus love you? We thank the Lord and we celebrate in him. Let us pray.